Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. If you've got your Bibles, open to Psalm 32. I had sincerely planned on uh, speaking to you this morning from John 10, John 10, 16, where Jesus says, I have sheep that are not of this flock, I must bring them also, and they will be one flock with one shepherd. I really wanted to preach to you on that uh, for a number of reasons, one being that it's so relevant to what we're talking about with missions. And yet, often you find yourself in the same position I find myself in where God doesn't ask you for your suggestions. He's not interested in what you think would be a great idea. He's asking you, and much more than that, he's commanding you to simply obey. And I think that there's a root cause that makes us not interested in missions at all that God wants to deal with. Because I think there is a grave problem that's sweeping across all of our churches in evangelicalism, if that word still means anything. And the problem is a coldness and a numbness. See, today, because of where we are in our technology, we have more access to information, more access to different methods and models, more access to conferences, more access to all of the Christian literature you can possibly imagine. And yet, if you were to honestly survey the scene, you would say that the majority of people as they're walking in, they seem spiritually asleep. There is a deadness sweeping across the land, is there not? And we start to wonder with all of the things that we have access to, with all of our plans and all of our ministries and all of our ideas, is God even in it? Or is it perhaps that we have done all of these things lacking the one thing that actually mattered, which was the presence of God? Because who really cares what kind of idea I've got? Or who really cares if we think we're going to do this instead of this if God's not in it? It's meaningless. And we need to take an honest look at ourselves and we need to say, how many of us Seriously, how many of us are spiritually asleep? When is the last time you had any intimacy with God? When is the last time that he has convicted your heart and shown you how awful sin is and how awesome the grace of God is? How many of us who have professed Christ really never actually believed the real gospel and are still unconverted? walking towards a Christless eternity, and yet we are in church every week, we would never even expect that God would show up. If he did, it would be the greatest surprise to all of us. That is an indictment against us, and I don't know what God is doing to me, but I assure you, this is not me talking to you as much as it's me talking to me. He has messed me up completely, messed my church up. 
And I don't know if, I don't know if he's bringing a renewal and he's starting it by breaking, but literally, as I'm sitting here trying to prepare for John 10, he says, no, I want Psalm 32. So I can't promise you a light message because it's not a light chapter. So with fear and trembling then, would you turn to Psalm 32 and read along? How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute or count iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Selah. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely in a flood of great waters they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule who, who have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Now, you need to know that David is pinning them, this psalm probably as a companion to Psalm 51, the great confession psalm, after a year of being like a mule without understanding under the mighty hand of God, he finally was broken. And he wrote in Psalm 51, by the way, do you know that David never mentions not one time lust in Psalm 51? Because it wasn't the issue. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's the issue. And after God breaks him, he writes Psalm 32, of course, it's not in chronological order, to say, this is my experience. For all of you who are wondering, all of you who are cold and dead and possibly even unconverted, you need to hear what happens when God breaks you, when God shows up. So he starts off and he says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord... Now, if you've got an ESV, it's going to say this, and I like this version a little bit better. It says, does not count against him. And in whose spirit there is no deceit. I couldn't get away from that phrase when he kept talking about the Lord not counting sin against him. I got the picture of God literally. And of course, this has the, the aspect of imputation where God is literally reckoning somebody as being a sinner. But I couldn't get the image out of my mind of God ticking off every time I sinned. He knows all of them. All the ones I wish nobody else would know. And it came to my mind where David here literally says in, in, in the NASB, which I think is probably the best here, how blessed is he whose transgression? How blessed? And I wondered how blessed I actually thought it was that I'm forgiven. Let me ask you a question. How amazing is grace really to you? Or have you heard the cross so many times that it's become numb and dead? Just talking, it's just words. David said, how blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, 
whose sin is covered. How blessed is he against whom the Lord does not count iniquity. Why? Because David knew how horrible it is to have God count your iniquity. If you've forgotten how awesome grace is, it's because you've forgotten how horrible it is to be lost. It's awful. Let me just read to you some passages. Great, great malady of the American church is not even knowing who God is. Create a God in your mind who's fine with you. He's not fine with us. Psalm, 103, Psalm 130, verse 3. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? The silence of the psalmist is the answer to the question. Nobody. Who could stand if God Almighty would mark the iniquity of sinners who sin every day in His presence? Nobody would stand. And yet, we're the people, are we not, in our culture? We're the people that Paul describes in Romans 3 when he gets to his litany of talking about there is no one good, not even one. And he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Nobody's worried about it anymore. Sat and talked to a guy in our community the other day from Chicago by way of Mexico. And he said, I got a first class ticket to hell. I said, you don't even know what hell is. Or you wouldn't be joking about it. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But did you know what David said? How blessed is the man against whom he does not count iniquity. What is the direction of God against sinners? He's against them. We get this idea in our mind because we, we never even stop to think about the holiness of God. He is against sinners. Just listen to Psalm 5. This is, this is one of the most devastating passages in all of the Bible. Listen to this. You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. Listen. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. He doesn't just hate the sin, folks. He hates evildoers. He is against evildoers. He counts their iniquity. And that is why Hebrews 10.31 says, It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Oh, would it be terrifying to us again? We would be thankful for our salvation if it was. I will never forget sitting in a chair thinking I would just drop into the pit of hell when God opened up to me what it was to be judged. I will never forget that. And Jonathan Edwards in his great sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, said the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow made ready on the string. And you can imagine if the arrow of God's wrath is aimed right at your heart and you figure it out how awesome it is to be forgiven. You stand in front of the tribunal and the judge is God and you're not looking at 50 to life. You're looking at an eternity of day after day after day when it will never get better when the furnace door is shut. And he says, not only forgiven, righteous. You'd feel something. 
What needs to happen with us and our cold, dead, numb American church? What needs to happen to us? A renewal of knowing who God is and the holiness of God. And outside of that, we'll still keep thinking how awesome we are and how the cross is really him just patting us on the back, how he should have done this for us. No, he shouldn't have done this for us. So David says, how blessed is the man who's forgiven because he knew how awful it is to be cursed. But you know, here's the irony. The insanity is knowing that and still living like you can trick God. The insanity is knowing beyond a shadow of a doubt that God counts your iniquity, that you can hide nothing from him and yet living like you can't. That's insane. That's ironic. Do you see what David said right here? Look at what he says. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Then he says, for when I kept silent. He said, how does he know that it's blessed not to have deceit in your spirit? Because he was deceitful. Against whom? What's deceit? Deceit is trickery. Trying to hide something. Who's he trying to hide it from? Well, not only everybody else, but he's trying to hide it from God. He counts my iniquity, David says, and I know how blessed it is not to have deceit in my spirit because I was hiding from him. Now listen to this. Here's the interesting thing. I want to know, because I don't know where you're at, but I bet some of you are hiding. I bet some of you are hiding right now. You're in deceit, and you're thinking, I've got everybody fooled. God's dealing with you, and you're wondering, am I going to let this go? What is keeping you from being exposed? Jesus tells you what is keeping you from being exposed in John 3. Now, you don't have to go there. I'm going to read the passage to you. This is one of the most interesting, informative, investigative passages and revealing passages on the human heart that are, that's in the Bible. And it's after one of the greatest passages... For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And we love that verse. We just don't read Psalm. We don't read John 3, 18 to 20. Listen to what he says. This is the judgment that light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Wait a second. They love darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. That's a marker of purpose. They don't want to come to the light because their deeds are evil. Well, that's not really communicating. So John, tell me what you mean by that. Look at verse 20. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Why don't you come to the light? Why is it that people are trying to deceive God, deceive everybody else, and hate the light because they're so afraid of being shown for who they are? They don't want anybody to know. I don't even want to see it. I will never forget. Multiple times in the past year, I have sat down with people who don't know the Lord, and I have said, look, Romans 1 says about you that you are a hater of God. What do you believe about that? They say, that can't be true. I said, well, you're calling God a liar. No, I'm not. You just said what he said wasn't true about you. I don't hate God. I don't hate God. What's that? Deceit. I'm unwilling to face what's true about me. 
And I want everybody else to think better of me. So I won't come into the light. I'd rather die and be judged than come into the light and let everybody see who I am. That's David. That's us. That's some of you this morning. I don't know. Some of you, you might have been members here for 40 years. I don't know. And you're sitting there thinking, I'm not even sure I'm converted. Praise God you're even thinking that. Look, this is what he says. Psalm 32.3, this is what happens. And I'm so thankful for guilt. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Selah. That means that all of the passion of David, literally all of the juice was gone. God ever done that to you? You're living in some sin and you know it and you just don't want to be exposed and God just ruins your life. I'm talking about ruins your life. He's done it to me. Isn't it getting kind of hard to carry that burden? Isn't it getting kind of hard to deceive the one who knows your heart? Jeremiah 17, 9, amazing passage. Listen to this. The heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The answer is Jeremiah 17, 10. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Who knows the heart? God knows the heart. Isn't it getting kind of hard to just keep walking in that suffering? Why don't you just come to the light? Stop it. Stop running. Some of you are Christians in this room and you haven't had intimacy with God in how long has it been? Because you're just unwilling to come to him. You are unwilling to bow your knee. You are unwilling to get rid of sin in your life. And listen, when David says, when he's talking about there's no deceit in his heart, he's not saying he's perfect. He's just saying he's honest. He's willing to be honest about the fact that he's a jerk. It's the same expression in John 1 when Jesus is talking to Nathaniel. Nathaniel says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? He's a, he's a stinking racist. And Jesus says, there's an Israelite in whom there's no deceit. What did he mean by that? Nathaniel's a racist. What he means is he's honest. At least he'll tell you what he thinks. You know what God wants from you? You don't have to get all this cleaned up. Be honest. Be honest with him. Be honest with yourself. Be honest with everybody else. You don't have it all together. In fact, you might have done something really horrible. And you can come to him. Because forgiveness can be found. But forgiveness will never be found unless you are willing to get it in the light. Acts 3.19 amazingly says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped out in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I want to tell you, that's what happens whenever you finally come to the light. There's some refreshment that goes on. I will never forget I had been running from the Lord, living in sin, and He had broken me and ruined my life completely. And I went after every other answer until finally it was resolved. And the next day, I was free. Free. I'm talking about refreshed. 
could run a marathon. Probably not. So here's David saying, how blessed is the man who's been forgiven because I know what it is to be condemned. And how blessed is the man who's not deceitful because I know what it is to try to trick God and I'm sick of it. So he says this, Psalm 32, 5, I acknowledged my sin to you. I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. So the first thing really is acknowledging For David, this meant owning his own murderous and adulterous heart that stole the wife of another man and stole the life of the husband of another woman and brought judgment on his own family. How did you like to own that? He owned it. You remember when Nathan comes to him? He doesn't say, you're the man. He says, you're the man. You're the one who did it. After David gets incensed about this parable that Nathan's used, he looks at him, he points his finger, and he says, it's you. That's what needs to happen to a lot of us. Because you know, the problem's not the American government. Help you, help me, help somebody. The problem is not the American, the problem's not out there. It's not all those people. All those people, when they get their lives cleaned up, we'll have a better society. The problem is me. And the problem is you. It's us. Sin is not some social construct that causes people to have bad lives. Thank you, social gospel. This sin is a personal offense against a holy God who is a person. You have literally committed a crime against God. And we're the problem. I'm the problem. You acknowledge it. And then David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. In 1 John 1.9, we know that he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And the word confess is homologeo. It means to say the same thing about it. It doesn't merely mean to say some repetitive words like, yes, I confess that that was a sin. It means to look at your sin and admit what God feels about it. It's awful. This is what one pastor said, it was, he said, when you put these two things together, acknowledgement of our sin and not, de- and not deceiving God, a very precise meaning for confession emerges. Confession to God is not merely admitting our sin as real, but also rejecting our sin as repulsive. There is deceit in the spirit of the person who admits with his mind that he sins, but feels no revulsion in his heart at those sins. His bad temper and irritability, his hypercritical attitude, his gossiping, his lukewarm love for Christ, his failure to discipline his children, his dishonesty on tax forms and financial reports, etc. This is deceit because sin is repulsive and horrid in God's eyes and ought to be hated and shunned. So to come to God admitting sin and feeling no grief or repugnance is to come with deceit, for what you are acknowledging is not really acknowledged as sin. The prerequisite, therefore, of divine forgiveness is admitting our sin as real and rejecting our sin as repulsive. That's what it means to confess. See it for what it is. Get on your face before God and see it the way he sees it. So verse 6a, which I think is really the purpose statement for the whole passage, this says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when they may be found. There's three commands here. That's the first one. 
for what you do with what David said about his experience, the first thing he says is, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Isn't it interesting he says, let them offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, because perhaps there will be a time when you will not be found. As in the 400, intertest- 400 years of intertestament when God did not speak, you don't think it's possible for God to, sh- to close his mouth? Let, let them seek you at a time when you may be found. Here's what Isaiah 55, 6 through 7 says. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Pardon is available, but seek him while he may be found. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Working together with him, then we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, In a favorable time I listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, Paul says, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. As I said to our church just a few weeks ago, please do not presume as if you have tomorrow. Tomorrow is a creation of God that he has not given to you yet. And please do not presume that when you get there, you will be able to repent or believe. Because we know that faith and repentance are both gifts of God, not something you carry inherently. Why? Because Philippians 1.29 says, It has been granted to you for Christ's sake, not only to believe, but also to suffer. It is a gift to believe. Then he says, the Lord's servant, 2 Timothy 2, 24 to 25, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. It is a gift. Do not assume nor presume that you will be able to tomorrow when God is calling you today. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Some of you are getting dealt with right now. Second command, he says, is be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Don't be a stupid farm animal. Why? Because he's telling you here, look at what he says. I, this is 32.8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God says, I'm going to lead you in this path. I'm going to counsel you. I'm going to show you where to go. But don't be like a mule that I've got to wrestle to the ground. Because there might be a time when the barn door gets closed and the hail comes and it won't open. When I tell you to go, you go. Don't make me twist your neck. That's what David was like. And for a year, God broke him. And for a year, he was like a mule. God says, don't do that. Do not do that with me. He's taking you to the place of repentance. Some of you are doing that right now. He's guiding you home. He's saying, now come on now. I've had to come and break you now. Come on. Get up. Follow me. I'm going to take you to places that you don't want to go, but you need to follow me there. Some of you, it's getting really bright, the light shining, and you're thinking, I can't handle this. Don't be like the mule. Don't twist your neck at God and bow your head and say, you won't go. Second 
Stop asking what will happen if you trust him. You ever asked that question before? But what's going to happen with my friends? What's going to happen with my family? What's going to happen if everybody knows? Who cares what everybody thinks? At the end of the day, you're going to stand before God and you're going to give an account to him. And you know who else is going to be there? Nobody. Just you. So what's going to make you follow him without bowing your head? He tells you in Psalm 32, 11, he says, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. What's going to make you go without bowing your neck at God and saying, I'm not going to go? What's going to make you go is gladness in the reward of God. Be glad in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord. In other words, he's better than all the garbage you're leaving behind. That's why you don't bow your neck and try to go back. He's better. Salvation is not merely being free from punishment. Salvation is you being saved to something. And what you're being saved to is God. Christ died once for all, the just for the unjust. That purpose statement, he might bring us to God What's going to keep you from bowing your head and being like a mule is the fact that you're headed towards an infinitely great treasure, which is why Matthew 13, says this, the parable of the treasure hidden in the field. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and in his joy sold everything he had and bought the field. Everybody thought he was psycho, loco, right? Selling everything you got to buy a field. Are you kidding me? He's the only one who knows what's there. Everybody else passed that field by a hundred times. Just never saw what was there. Let them call out to you now. Don't be like a mule and be glad in the Lord. This is fairly amazing that if that's what you're willing to do and that's what you're willing to do, and that's how you're willing to follow. Listen to what he says. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous. That's fairly interesting to say to somebody who's just had a son murdered. Righteous? Are you kidding me? David? The murderer? The adulterer? The one who can't seem to obey and keeps taking census of the people when God tells him not to? the one who has gotten multiple people's lives ruined, ask Uriah's dad how righteous David is. Why? Because when David says in Psalm 32, 1, how blessed is the man to whom, against whom the Lord does not count iniquity, he didn't just set you free, he counted something else to you. He made you righteous. Wonder of wonders that he doesn't just look at you and say, forgiven, he looks at you and says, blameless, righteous. He looks at you in the righteousness of his own son that you killed. And then he invites you to come to the table and eat with him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous ones. Well, 
If he counts you as righteous, then he's totally for you. And that's a good thing. Because to have God against you is the worst thing in the world. And to have God for you is the best thing in the world. This is what he says. This is how God protects his own. And he will make sure that you get there. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Psalm 32, 6. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Selah. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, Psalm 32, 10, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. In other words, he will counsel and care for his own until they arrive to be with him. He counts the unrighteous as righteous, gives them gladness in his presence forevermore, and then says to you, oh, and by the way, I will take care of you as long as as you are on the other side of heaven. And when you arrive, you will reign with me. Now let me ask you, what's keeping you in your sin? Is God going to have to break you down the way that he did David like a mule until you're willing to follow? Or will you today? And for some of you, it's repenting for the 10,000th time. For some of you, it's repenting for the first time. Really repenting. But if God's dealing with you, then here's the call, the clarion call to you. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Today is the day of salvation. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin Place your faith in Christ Jesus, His death for you on the cross, and His resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions, or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623, or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.